Hello, and welcome to Crazy Making. I'm Simon Adam, host of Crazy Making. In today's episode, the inaugural episode, I'm joined by two remarkable critical mental health scholars, Dr. Marina Morrow and doctoral candidate Afrat Gold. Marina is a professor at the School of Health Policy and Management in the Faculty of Health at York University. In her work, Marina uses critical mental health and intersectional approaches to better understand the social, political, and institutional processes through which health and mental health policies and practices are developed, and how social and health inequities are sustained or attenuated for different populations. Marina strongly supports public scholarship and the work and activism of the MAD movement and MAD scholars. She is the lead editor on a recent book called Critical Inquiries for Social Justice in Mental Health, available from the University of Toronto Press. Efrat Gold is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto engaging in MAD and disability studies. Through her writing and activism, she challenges dominant views of mental health and illness, moving towards contextualized and relational understandings of suffering and distress. Gold critiques psychiatry, focusing on those most vulnerable and marginalized by psychiatric power, discourse, and treatments. Her work is staunchly feminist, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive. Through explorations into norms, meaning-making, and constructions of legitimacy, Gold unsettles psychiatric hegemony by returning to the sites where psychiatric certainty has been produced. start with you. I'm um, curious, tell us, what are you up to these days? What sort of research are you currently conducting right now? What are you engaging in? Well, that's a, that's a nice uh, question to start with, Simon. So the, the work that I'm doing right now, um, I have a project that's, that's um, funded, where we're actually looking at, um, well, let me, let me just start by saying it's a collaboration, um, quite a large project, a collaboration between uh, colleagues um, who are working both in the university, but also in community activist work on mental health. And it's a collaboration between Canada, Australia, and Kenya. And we've come together around our shared concerns about the way in which um, mental health care is often coercive, involuntary, um, in some cases, extremely damaging to people. And so we want to explore uh, some of this, uh, people's experiences in more depth of those um, practices. And the, the project itself has a number of different components, including you know, an analysis of policy, um, you know, looking at people's lived experiences of these, these practices. And then we also very much want to bring forward um, services and supports and resources that are in line with human rights and in line with um, equity for people. Wow, thanks, Marina. Um, obviously, really, really important work. Um, um, you, you know, you, you drew my attention to three concepts, uh, coercion, involuntary, and damaging. And, and I'd like to return to these 
Um, so um, I just kind of want to put them in your mind for now. I do want to get to uh, Afrat and I just want to uh, just sort of uh, understand what she's up to as well. And then uh, I'd like to engage in a conversation about this idea of coercion, involuntary treatment and, um, and damage related to psychiatric quote unquote care. So Efrat, um, let me turn to you. What, are you. what are you up to? What's your research about? Well, currently I'm in the process of writing my dissertation. So I'm pretty immersed in my research right now, uh, which is archival research, basically, uh, going back to the archives, I've decided to return to the site where psychiatric certainty was produced in Canada. So basically where psychiatry began to carry the weight of, of medical fact, you know? So how, how did this become a fact? What was the context? What were some of the things going on at that time? This is shortly uh, following World War II. And I do that because I believe that by returning to the sites where you know where certainty has been constructed and produced uh, and made to appear as fact or as legitimate, I believe that that really opens up a productive conversation around. Well, wait a minute, do we actually believe that? Did it hold then? Did it, does it hold now? Uh, and what are some of the politics around that 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 shape what we decades later come to understand as a fact? I think you um, you also call that legitimization or legitimation. I believe have you have you ever articulated it in that way? I have. <laughs> um, yes, you know, I, I think that we go through our day to day lives, and our lives are so shaped by institutions and by institutional definitions of things, and psychiatry and the concepts of mental health and mental illness are no different. They shape our day-to-day -day lives in so many ways, you know, and some that we might be aware of and others that we might not be aware of. And so I, I my interest is in how, how did that legitimacy come about? Um, and, and how was it created? Who was it created by? And to, to what ends? All right, really, really uh, important questions, Efrat. I just want uh, for the reason for reasons of clarification, um, you um, you say archives and archival research for our listeners who are not familiar with, with with what an archive is and what archival research involves. Can you just explain a little bit around that? Of course. Um, basically, archives are repositories of old documents, whatever they might be. So, uh, so each archive might really vary uh, quite a bit. My own research looks mostly at the archives of the Canadian um, National Committee for Mental Hygiene, which today is known as the Canadian Mental Health Association. And through that, I also look at the uh, McGill archives of how certain uh, very influential departments of psychiatry came to exist. Uh, and also the University of Toronto archives, how these things are and how a lot of these people were in conversation with one another. You know, the construction of psychiatry as, as a field and also as a branch of medicine, it didn't just come about on its own. There's actually a key group of very influential people that brought this about. And they were working at McGill University, at the University of Toronto and in the Mental Hygiene Institute. 
and the National Committee for Mental Hygiene. So, and, and there's a lot of overlap between who those people are and what, um, and what committees <laughs> and uh, programs they're working with. So a lot of the archives that I look at, look at the meeting minutes from, from the meetings that were held, a lot of the correspondences between these people, as well as things like funding applications and grant applications, their efforts to get money and how it is that they were presenting their desire to build up the field of psychiatry at the time when it was first being uh, established as, as a, branch of medicine. Wow, a very interesting, very interesting sources of data that you're drawing on to create this obviously very important project, Efrat. Thank you for explaining the archive um, to us. I want, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I want to pose a question to you if you were, you know, given we're, you know, critically engaging with mental health, obviously, and we're critically engaging with the concept of mental health and mental illness, um, and Marina kickstarted us really nicely. Uh, if I were to uh, ask you, what sort of, what is the biggest bone you have to pick with psychiatry? What is the biggest issue that you want in your work to tackle? Um, and I know, Marina, you mentioned uh, coercion and involuntariness, nature of psychiatry, and then this other thing this, that, that it's damaging. Um, how is psychiatry coercive and, uh, uh, you know, creating sort of involuntary practices? And um, Marina, I'll start with you. Great. Thanks for that. I think, um, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a really good question. And I think for me, you know, and I know if you will expand on this more, but, you know, so one of the biggest bones I have to pick with psychiatry is partly um, that its legitimacy has not been well earned. So that when you look at the literature and you look at, um, say, for example, you know, diagnoses that we now are becoming more and more familiar with in the public, things like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, all of these different um, things that that are are sort of explained to us as though they are something that exist and that there's lots of good scientific evidence behind them. Uh, when you actually do a deep dive into the clinical literature, you discover that that in, that in fact it's a lot more messy and a lot more complex. Not that people don't experience distress um, on very high levels, but are we don't really know enough about um, the brain and, and biology to say that these are um, legitimate kind of syndromes per se. And then of course the treatment in psychiatry for the last you know many. Uh, psychopharmaceutical drugs, many of which have very powerful um, and often damaging side effects. So, so that legitimacy piece is really important to me as well. And then in terms of your points about um, coercion and involuntary treatment, so psychiatry works in tandem with a legislative framework uh, in the Canadian context and elsewhere, where the state has the power to take away um, a person's right to their own choices. And we don't do this in anywhere, any, any other part of our healthcare system. We really only do it in the context of mental health. So if someone is seen um, to be you know, acting in a way that is socially unacceptable, that uh, might be seen as, as possibly um, dangerous to themselves or others, they can immediately lose their rights and be taken in under the Mental Health Act, for example, in the Canadian context, and then, and then detained and forcibly treated. And so, and, and because the treatments are sometimes worse, you know, than um, 
then the cure uh, that you know that's where you know the problems come come into come into play. So anyway, so those would be I guess some of the key issues that I would want to highlight around the problems of psychiatry. So not to say that all people's experiences of, of psychiatry are exactly the same, um, but there are many many uh, people who've documented uh, the the you know the damaging effects of psychopharmaceutical treatment and these other kinds of practices, which include things like, you know, being secluded, being physically restrained, or being what is referred to as chemically um, restrained through, through these drugs. Um, right, you, I, I was about to ask you, um, uh, you know, about, you know, the, there's the possibility of whole other segments of people who do report that they are helped by psychiatry, and you did actually, you, you, you touched on that, Marina. Thanks very much. Um, it, it's, I guess, the question is around all those other communities and populations who uh, have emerged in resistance to the biomedicalization of mental health, uh, who are our focus, who are the impetus of this great work that you and Efrat are doing. So thank you for that. Thanks. Um, and I know, Marina, as a, as a critical discourse analyst, uh, which is what you are, you have definitely um, done a lot of work in examining um, the, the linguistic legitimacy of psychiatry. Um, I'm, I'm curious, Efrat, um, if, you know, what, if anything, have you found in your research with the archives, if, if you're there yet, I'm not sure how far you are in your analysis with your dissertation, but, um, the sort of legit legitimacy that you and um, Marina are talking about. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, and I think this actually also ties into what my, my biggest bone to pick with psychiatry is, which is that it's, it's become the only option, the only way of understanding distress and suffering and crisis. And there are other ways. I think that, you know, many people do feel that they have been harmed um, by the psychiatric system. And, you know, and I, I'm no different. I, I too have uh, lost a brother that I, I think really suffered at the hands of psychiatry and at the hands of understanding distress and difference only in one way that is very medicalized. So I think that that also speaks to legitimacy, because when you turn towards one option and one option only, it actually erases the fact that many ways to look at this exist and have existed throughout history um, variously. And so in that sense, too, it's less about whether or not um, people feel that they personally are helped by psychiatry, because some people do, and there's no denying that. But there is no other option, there is no other place to turn. And so I think in terms of legitimacy, what I've found in the archives is a lot of this construction of distress, of difference, uh, of any kind of deviation from norms, which require us to work in particular ways and to socialize in particular ways. Any kind of deviation from that then gets viewed and treated, whether a person wants it or not, only through a medical lens. 
So I think that's part of the problem with legitimization. And as Marina was saying, there's a lot that gets presented to us as there is no other way to look at this. This is a scientific fact. This is well established. When you look at the science, it's, it's not actually as well established as it's presented as being. But even beyond science, there is only one way that is presented as any option of understanding human distress at all. And that's through psychiatry. Thanks, Efrat. Yeah, that's uh, that is really um, the crux of what I I, I think uh, what Michel Foucault would would term a, a circulating truth or a or a dominant subjugating discourse that pushes all others to the margin. Um, yeah, very interesting work. I you know I just I want to ask you, Efrat, just really specifically related to your research, you did mention. Um, that um, the what you're what you're calling psychiatry carrying uh, the weight of medical fact, or that sort of legitimization of psychiatry, and that happening uh, shortly following World War II. Why do you think? Why then? I think that following World War II, you know, Western society especially was really in this period of flux. We had gone from this time of eugenics, where basically social conceptions of what a desirable citizen is became framed in medical terms, right? Where anything, anybody disabled, anybody, you know, Jewish people, certainly Black and Indigenous people in North America and in Canada, were framed as lesser than for reasons that had more to do with social location than they did anything scientific. And so I think following World War II, there was a wide recognition that this was actually a very dangerous way to approach. But rather than excavating that period of human history and really looking at where do these things come from, um, where do these constructions of desirability of social norms, how is it that we came to understand and frame them in terms of science and of medicine, uh, instead of doing that, we actually just kind of shifted a little bit. So we can condemn that, you know, killing Jewish people because they're Jewish. Well, that's wrong. We can all agree. You know, we shouldn't necessarily just be killing disabled people indiscriminately because their lives are, are less than because they can't work and they can't contribute to society in the same way. But these concepts didn't just disappear. And I think many people believe that they did, you know, that now we kind of look down on eugenics and as though this doesn't happen anymore. But it does. And these frames shifted to many different areas. I think a lot of them in, in areas of medical genetics. Uh, and certainly one of those areas is in psychiatry. And at the same time, you also have all of these traumatized people following World War II. You have refugees that have fled the Holocaust that are now, you know, trying to set up their lives in different parts of the world uh, and learning new languages and trying to start families. You also have all of these um, traumatized veterans and soldiers that are returning from war. And so there really was an immediate need, I think, on a, on a wide level to deal with that collective trauma in so many different ways. Now, unfortunately, trauma wasn't really uh, widely 
adopted concept or a widely considered concept at that time. And so the way that it kind of became constructed as an immediate outgrowth of eugenics is through this very medicalized vision of, well, if only we could take people and replace their problematic thoughts and personalities with more desirable ones, if only we could do that, then we would have this full society of happy, healthy model citizens that are contributing exactly as we want them to. So in my work, this does actually relate quite a bit to ideas that were popular at the time around uh, brainwashing and, and these conceptualizations that that were even possible to just kind of replace somebody's personality with a whole different desirable one. And I think those are some of the reasons why following World War II, this really did become much more established in, in a way that is quite similar to how we understand it today still. And we, and we see we and we see that really with with every population that interacts with psychiatry. We see it with children um, whose behavior is pathologized. We see it with with women who are first time mothers and and framed as you know postpartum depressed and told that the world is a great place and a happy place and you should be joyous to have a child and kind of you know buck up and and move on and. Um, so we, it definitely infuses throughout various populations and communities um, throughout the world, uh, this sort of ideology that you um, articulate, Efrat. Absolutely. And I think it also, <laughs> just to add one last thing, um, it, it also shifts us and our attention away from the political because the world is just fine as it is. What's, what the problem is, is you as a person, as an individual are unable to cope with it in various ways or to adjust to it the way that you are supposed to. So the problem is never political. It's always with you as an individual, as a medically ill person, as a mentally ill person. Right. You know, so, you know, so now we have psychiatry. We have psychiatry and we, um, a, a number of us are not happy with, um, you know, mental health services. Uh, psychiatry is at best problematic, at worst traumatizing, damaging, um, you know, um, and as you say, Efrat, it's become um, the, the only answer, the dominant approach, the only approach in many instances and in many um, social spaces, uh, medical spaces, political spaces, um, and, and that there is no other option, this, this idea of no other option. Um, but, but are there other options? Are there alternatives to psychiatry? Are there different ways of framing mental health, mental illness, you know, psycho-emotional distress and pain? Other, are there different ways of, of framing that and responding to that sort of distress that the everyday person would want to hear about that is not psychiatry, that's beyond psychiatry? Um, it, are there other options? And, and what might they be? Efrat, um, do you want to... Sure. Me to uh, well, I, I think that what can't be overlooked here is that people do find ways to cope. And they find lots of ways to do that. Uh, so, you know, some people might have been hearing a lot lately about microdosing and how that's helping certain people. You know, for a lot of people, things like meditation, yoga, mindfulness practices, 
help them in the day-to-day -to, -day to, to stay grounded or to connect with themselves. Um, you know, of course there are, if, if for people who can afford it, there are more traditional therapies like talk therapy, uh, even things like EMDR, which I've heard lots of things about, uh, especially related to trauma. So I think that there are lots of approaches uh, to distress and to suffering. I think often, almost always, in fact, those are not enough. Um, and to be honest, I also think that there, there is no there's no way to take away distress from the human experience. I think that that is a defining part of, of what it is to be alive as a consciousness in the world. And I, I think that a, a everybody, every individual um, finds their ways and finds the approaches that work better for them to deal with their own distress. Yeah, so I think one thing that's important, I think, to understand around alternatives is that um, our healthcare system is structured in such a way that it makes it very difficult to access anything that is not psychiatry based. So you probably have heard the term that, you know, the mental health care system is a two tiered system. And what that means is that under our publicly funded healthcare system, all that's really funded is access to, you know, emergency care, you know, crisis response. Um, and, you know, and basically kind of psychiatric care. People often talk about how difficult it is to access the system. Once you get access, you can sometimes then, um, you know, avail yourself of, of some community-based supports. Uh, but it's not like there's a lot of things that people can just sort of walk into and, and get um, support and resources from. So that, so there's already kind of a structural problem biased um, towards um, psychiatry. At the same time, we know there are a lot of alternatives out there. And I think, um, I think as, as Efrat was saying, you know, this, this can be a very individual thing in terms of what um, people, you know, find to be the most um, help, helpful and supportive to them during times of mental distress. Um, but there are also well-researched alternatives. And I'm thinking, for example, of just something even locally here in Toronto, uh, like the Gerstein Centre, which is a, a crisis response centre, that's a non-medical approach that sends out, um, you know, people who've been trained to help folks in a in a crisis when they're experiencing mental distress uh, to try to avoid that cycle of going into the hospital, into emergency, and then immediately being psychiatrized. Um, so that would be kind of one local example. There are other you know, international examples. I'm thinking of um, the Open Dialogue uh, program, which I'm sure um, Simon, you've heard of, and um, if right, you've probably heard of as well, that, that um, is a, uh, was established in Finland and was actually uh, designed specifically to respond to people experiencing psychosis. And you know, usually if you're experiencing psychosis in Western medicine, immediately the treatment is um, you know, psychopharmaceutical. Um, in the case of the Open Dialogue program, it, it's really seen as, as something that has to be uh, resolved through conversation and dialogue and relationship building with people who are around you and, and um, your support system. So a radically different way of understanding experiences of psychosis. So, you know, there's many, many others that we could mention. There's the Hearing Voices Movement as an example, which, you know, normalizes the whole uh, experience of hearing voices and, and does this again without using sort of psychiatric approaches or drug-based approaches. So I think there's, there's many things out there. And I think what's frustrating is that 
um, they haven't been adopted on any kind of or supported, you know, through our through policy or through um, financing in the mental health care system. Right. Um, so what I'm hearing is uh, that, you know, in terms of other options or alternatives, there's a sort of uh, this uh, push to, um, you know, uh, alternatives to reframe uh, how mental health and mental illness is, is deployed medically. So to reframe it in more sort of community-based, phenomenological, lived experience type of human condition sort of framing. And then also uh, alternatives to responding to people in this sort of distress. Uh, so that it's sort of like two ways or two types of alternatives um, uh, that um, obviously your, your work, Marina and Efrat, is um, importantly advancing. Um, I just, I want to touch on something, Marina, you said you've got, uh, with your current project, you are collaborating with uh, people from Kenya and Australia. And I'm curious um, about, um, about that collaboration. I mean, why Kenya and Australia? And if you can talk about the importance of collaborating globally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so Kenya, Australia, and Canada are all Commonwealth countries, um, we, and they've all had um, differing kinds of experiences of of uh, colonization and so you know in the in the context of Australia and Canada it's the indigenous populations that were colonized and in Kenya of course it's the, the British um, colonization and why this is important is that um, and this is maybe not as well known to, to some folks but that colonization and that history um, has actually also really shaped psychiatry and psychiatry's responses so you know for example um, the ways in which um, Black folks and Indigenous folks have been more pathologized um, than the, you know, Euro-Canadian population would be one example. So, so those three countries were kind of chosen in part because of that, but also because they share um, a legislative framework around the Mental Health Act. So in terms of involuntary treatment, it's enacted and, and the sort of the, the way the state um, enacts that is kind of similar in, in all three locales, even though are the mental health care systems are, are quite different, especially in the Kenyan context. Um, but the importance, I think, of collaboration to sort of speak to that point, I, I mean, in my research, I've found it's, it's critically important not just to um, have collaborations with other academics, um, but to have collaborations that involve uh, people with lived experience, activists, advocates, policy decision makers, you know, people working in the mental health care system, because I think the only way we can really um, further advance our knowledge and understanding of these issues and, and our approaches to them is through that kind of collaborative research. And it becomes even more powerful when you can do it across um, jurisdictions and in other um, you know, cultural and, and um, global contexts. Uh, Western psychiatry has become the framework for the world, really. You know, so if you think about the global health movement, people have heard of that, the global health movement and global mental health movement has really been to bring Western psychiatric approaches um, to everyone. And, you know, that's extremely problematic, you know, because of the ways in which, it, for all of the reasons that we've talked about today, but also um, for the fact that it then overrides, you know, traditional healing, um, you know, knowledges that have been built up in other cultural contexts that are very powerful and helpful for people. So, so those kinds of collaborations, I think, are really critical because it helps to uh, to you know, bring I guess coherence to some of this, and also 
um, a way for us to resist this global movement of um, psychiatry being advanced and on all you know at all corners of the earth, so to speak. Right, like a sort of um, you know a, a resist the global movement by way of forging global connections of resistance. I see, and and I I do see that, um, uh, you know, and and. And it, so, so is it then? Is it's your hope that the findings that will emerge out of this research project will have um, a, an impact on not just uh, Canadian discourse, but also Kenyan and Australian? Is that right? Yes, that's right. And and I think the other, you know, the other thing maybe just to mention on the global scale is that all of these countries have signed on to the UN Convention on the Rights for People with Disabilities, which is a convention, an international convention, which really stands uh, against the notion of people's choices being taken away in terms of you know what kinds of care they receive and really stands against you know coercive practices um, and so you know that's another kind of I think key, like key um, component of of the research but also just generally to keep in mind that some of the practices that that we see as just kind of routine in the Canadian context are actually in violation of an international treaty that we've signed on to Thank you, Marina. Efrat, um, I want to I want to skip over to you, um, and uh, you might have already uh, answered this or or said something about it. But I'm I'm curious in your archival research in in your current doctoral study right now, are there any global threads, or is there any um, sort of um, uh, relevance to uh, this global health or global mental health movement that um, Marina? Um, mentioned? That's an excellent question. And actually, there are because some of the psychiatrists that were very, very instrumental in establishing the field of psychiatry in Canada were also um, some of the psychiatrists that were testifying at Nuremberg in the Nazi war criminal trials. Uh, and so we do see some crossover in that sense. They were also there were projects uh, in various parts of Africa that, you know, in the archives, I, I realized, I only discovered this recently, uh, were funded by the CIA. Mm -hmm. That is hard to kind of find what those studies actually entailed, but at the time they were calling it transcultural psychiatry. And this was an area that early psychiatrists were interested in building up. But I think even more broadly than just my own uh, dissertation research, I can say that although some a lot of the things that we've been speaking about today, they are based within the academy and within academia and that kind of discourse. But one of the things I absolutely love about this area is that it's really rooted in and led by community. You know, so psychiatric survivor movements, mad movements, people, as Marina said, people with lived experience, that's really, you know, this isn't just theory for the sake of theory. It's actually, it stems from the real world and the need. And I think the constant demand from community to have different options and different ways of understanding themselves and their distress and how to cope with life. And so I think that that's actually um, infinitely important here in the sense that 
this really isn't just an academic discipline. It's, it's really rooted in people's experiences locally, globally, and in how these things interact. Yeah, thanks, uh, Efrat, for really actually bringing, bringing this down to the relevance, to the everyday person, uh, uh, which is, you know, really my intention with uh, the series uh, of Crazy Making is to really connect and, um, you know, engage uh, with what I'm calling the everyday person, the, you know, the, the general members of the public, because oftentimes we find that this sort of research and work, while it's very important, uh, it tends to also be exclusive and exclusionary, confined to the hallways of the academy and the, the proverbial you know, ivory tower. So um, that is, um, you know, I, I just, I love how you really brought that down to, to relevance to everyday life. Before I let you go, I just wanna kind of leave off with a final question uh, for our listeners and for what I'm calling the everyday person. If you were to, to engage uh, with, with, with your typical everyday member of the public, what would you tell them um, about um, psychiatry, the work that you're doing, the work that needs to be done, uh, if you have any message or any advice to give? And um, I'll start with you, Marina. Yeah, I think, I think my, my, uh, my main message would be to people to, you know, move, to, to encourage them to think beyond um, the individual, right? To think about how social context, how, where you live, you know, the access that you have to various resources, whether that's financial resources, whether that's educational resources, to think about how we're all embedded in a particular context and that that psychiatry unfortunately just doesn't really do a very good job of taking that context into account and that it really looks at um, trying to fix the individual and the individual's brain quite literally rather than trying to understand the individual in this broader context and that doesn't mean that the brain isn't important here I think there's these really important interactions between biology and our environment and that often isn't really taken into account. So, so I guess I would ask people to try to stretch their, their thinking and to be, be suspicious of explanations that um, are, are very individualistic explanations that don't really help us to understand the broader context in which people experience mental distress. Because that context um, influences everything from our experiences of, of the distress to the ways in which we'll be reacted to and supported or not supported within the current uh, mental health care system. Thank you, Marina, for reminding us that it is not just academics who purportedly engage in critical thinking and resistance that uh, anyone uh, is capable of pushing, critiquing, uh, being suspicious, and sort of remaining vigilant. Um, Efrat, what are your thoughts? I think, you know, jumping off of Marina's answer here, what I would ask people to think about is what happens when we come to interpret, you know, human trauma and distress and suffering and crisis only through a medical lens, what gets lost there? And I think Marina really uh, explained how context is, is one of the things that gets lost. So we depoliticize our understandings of ourselves and our traumas, you know, the effects of living in an unjust world uh, and all of the isms that that, that incorporates. Um, but beyond that, also that we come to understand ourselves and our own distress and suffering through medical terms. And in doing so, 
we kind of start to take on the work of institutions and the work of enforcing normalcy uh, for other people and, and to in ourselves and as well in others. So whose reality and suffering ends up counting as real? Uh, and, and that would be my question is when we turn towards the medical lens, what are we turning away from? What are the possibilities that we're not considering? Yeah, thank you, Efrat, for helping us really relocate power uh, and 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 uh, potentially um, seeing um, again the what I'm calling the everyday person as as uh, a site of resistance and uh, someone who can possess the power to talk back and resist. Um, I, I just want to thank you both uh, immensely for your wisdom, your thoughts, your reflections, and for appearing on Crazy Making, this, the, the, the inaugural episode of the series. Uh, thank you, Marina uh, and Efrat. Marina is a professor in the Faculty of Health at York University, and Efrat is a doctoral candidate at the University of Toronto. Thank you both. Thank you, Simon. Subscribe and listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Reach out to us by email at crazymaking at yorku.ca. That's crazymaking at yorku.ca. And follow us on Instagram at crazymakingpodcast. This podcast is written and hosted by me, Simon Adam, and edited by Among Antariksh Sagar. Thanks for listening.